Good morning, everyone. Scripture reading this morning is Luke 23, verses 35 to 43. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Good morning, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Greg. And... Uh, it's good to be together with all the news of the, the storms and stuff. We weren't sure uh, if we'd be here, but this is awesome. Uh, I'm just going to begin with uh, a prayer. Jesus, uh, we are all here because on some level uh, we want to know you. And we want uh, to enter into um, life uh, with you in some way. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you uh, would speak and move. And we know uh, that nothing of any lasting difference comes except by your Spirit. And so we do uh, invite you to speak. And I ask God that if there is a way that you can use my words uh, this morning, that you would do so. Amen. So if you're comfortable, I want you to close your eyes for a second and try to clear your mind of any images. And now picture in your mind paradise. So paradise. Take a look around. Take it in. Notice where are you? What is around you? What do you feel? What do you smell? What do you see? Are you by yourself? Or is there someone with you? And if people are with you, take note of who is there. Now, whatever you do, don't think of a pink elephant. I'm just kidding. Come back to reality. Does anyone have a pink elephant in their paradise? I, I'm just kidding. It's a good way to ruin. So how many of you pictured something in nature? Perhaps someplace tropical or a sandy beach or an ocean. Perhaps the mountains or a clear crystal blue lake. A sunset or a sunrise. Right? Quite a few of us. How many of you was it someplace you've been before? Or perhaps someplace that you visited. It might have even been someplace that was once your home. 
How many of you pictured Toronto in 30 centimeters of heavy, wet snow having to dig yourself out? Oh, yeah, yeah well, yes. I, I, I was going to say, some of our friends new to Canada, this, this is it's paradise if you compared to the, what you've had to escape. So, um, yeah, we don't begrudge the snow, right? So if you were with other people, and it's okay if you're an introvert and you weren't with other people, it's okay. Perhaps just don't tell those closest to you that they weren't there. But were you with other people? Did any, did any of us go someplace alone? How many of you pictured floating in the clouds with chubby white babies with wings? For those of you who don't know, that's a common misconception of heaven um, that we get from Renaissance painters uh, that has nothing to do with the Bible, but feels nice, this kind of idea of clouds and flying and wings and all of that. Now, perhaps after worship, if you're like me and sometimes you have a hard time entering conversation with people you haven't met, this could be a, a quick, easy way to start a conversation. It's just to ask what, what someone else pictured in their paradise. But again, I'm guessing a good portion of us think of some place in nature, some place real, or it could be some place imaginary that has this physical beauty, but also represents something of deep joy, of life, or of peace. Other place filled with adventure or excitement, or a place of deep peace and stillness for those of us who uh, aren't the active type. Or perhaps it was a deep connection with other people. And I suspect that what is an idyllic paradise to you and to us is shaped both by the cultural milieu of the environment that we are raised in and shaped by our own God-given personalities, as some of us will be alone in that paradise and some of us will be with other people. Or, and it's also shaped by something I think that is deep within us in our shared humanity as people who are created in the image of God. And as we come today to reflect on these words of Jesus on the cross that Karen read for us, it seems a good place to start uh, in is a good place for us to start is in paradise. Well, we're not going to literally start in paradise. Um, I hope that no one, when you close your eyes, the picture, the pic, the paradise you pictured was uh, sitting on a hardwood pew listening to me talk. But many of us, when we read these words that Jesus said to the criminal hanging next to him, when he says, today you will be with me in paradise, what comes to mind is not usually our favorite vacation spot, some earthly wilderness, right? Many of us who have read this before, we do actually picture that clouds up in the sky, angels playing harps kind of heaven idea. But it is very unlikely that this is what Jesus meant since he was speaking to someone from the first century, not the 21st century. And to make sense of this, I think it is helpful for us to understand how the ancient world understood cosmology. Colin made a joke about me covering the entire history of, well, of creation. Well, I'm actually going to kind of do that. But don't worry, I'm not covering everything. But it's helpful to look at how the ancient world understood cosmology. When we think about the cosmos, we think about the universe uh, and the earth. And the earth revolves around the sun. And the sun is just one of over septillion stars, at least that we can see. 
Septillion, I had to look it up, is a one with 24 zeros after it. And so when we think about heaven as this place up there, we don't actually think of it as a place up there that we could see with a telescope or fly to with a spaceship. But we think of it more as this kind of different dimension, right? Or a different plane or reality. I imagine as time moves on, we're going to begin to think of it more as some sort of multiverse concept, thanks to comic books making the multiverse concept uh, popular. We think of this place often without physical tangibility. But the ancients didn't have this understanding. To them, the cosmos was much more of a limited physical space. Now here's an image that hopefully will help us grasp this. Don't worry, it's, there's no test on this. You don't have to be able to read all the words. And the reason I'm sharing this is I think it helps us enter into the story, this story of Jesus on the cross. But for those of you who've never seen or thought about this concept, it actually, this helps when you read the entire Bible to understand the language the Bible uses about creation. Especially when we read the account of creation in Genesis 1, Genesis 1 is painting this. This is the picture that Genesis 1 paints for us. And this is throughout the scriptures when they talk about cosmos and the earth. This is what they are, the Bible is talking about. In the ancient world, we understood cosmology that everything that exists is in this kind of a bubble, which was surrounded by an abyss of water. So all of the white around this circle is water. This is the deep into which God created. Holding back this abyss of water are pillars which are rising up out of the mountains. And the Hebrew scriptures tell us these pillars are called the firmament. So when you read in the Psalms about the firmament of heaven, this is what it's talking about. It's these pillars that are coming up. And our, the firmament was this dome. And the dome is what made the sky. So moving across the firmament are the lights of the sun and the stars and the moon which rotate in a 24-hour basis. And in the firmament are windows that open up and let water from the abyss come in. And this is what we call rain, of course, right? And then above this firmament, beyond the waters, is heaven, is eternity, is where God dwells. Okay, are you with me? Then in the middle is earth. In the earth is the land where the animals and the humans dwell. And if you know the story of creation in the Bible, it is on earth, it is in this middle plane between those two mountains in the picture where the Garden of Eden was. The place that God first places human beings, this beautiful lush garden where in the center is the tree of life. And then finally, below the earth are these pillars that hold up the land and then there's more waters, and these waters are the ones that come up through the holes that make land, or make lakes and seas. It's no wonder that there was some fear of large bodies of water in the ancient times, right? From coming up from underneath this dark chasm. And here, in this underworld, below the earth, is a place called, in Hebrew, called Sheol. It's kind of like a hollow place. That's the kind of the gray blob in the middle underneath the earth. Sheol is this hollow place, and it is the place of the dead. 
For the Hebrews, Sheol is where everyone went when they died. Everyone went there when they died. The righteous and the unrighteous. Everyone goes there. Now, you with me so far? Now, not to get, so we don't get too confused, and hopefully you'll see why I'm bothering with all of this. <laughs> but not to get too confused, we're going to just leave Sheol there, place of the dead for a moment. We're going to come back to earth and the Garden of Eden. In the scriptures that most Jews of Jesus' day that they read and heard was a Greek translation of the original Hebrew called the Septuagint. In the same way that we read English translations of the Greek New Testament, the Jews read a Greek translation of the Hebrew. And in the Greek translation, which is called the Septuagint, for those of you who like in facts, in the Septuagint, the, the word garden in Greek is, can you guess? Paradise. It is paradise. So for a first century Jew, it wasn't the Garden of Eden. It was the paradise of Eden. Eden was a paradise for two reasons back in Genesis 1. In the words of Sandra Richter from her book, The Epic of Eden... She says that Eden was a fruit-filled paradise animated by a cosmic river and graced by the tree of life. It was paradise because it was a place where humans and all of creation were in this beautiful sink of coexistence without pain, without suffering. Uh, and then secondly and more significantly, Eden was paradise because humans... And Adam and Eve lived in this garden in the unhindered presence of God. More than lush vegetations, it was a human had full access to the presence of God. They walked and talked with God face to face and lived in this unhindered relationship to God. This is why the Garden of Eden was paradise. And why the Jews, when they read the story of creation, it didn't say the Garden of Eden. It said the Paradise of Eden. And then, of course, we know sin comes in. Brokenness and rebellion and pride and violence enters in the world. And humans had to leave the Garden of Par or the Paradise of Eden. Not to return. Until, of course, as many of us know, a main story arc... It goes over all of the Old Testament and continues on into the New Testament where we hear about Jesus. Is that one day all of creation will be restored back into right relationship with God. That garden, that paradise of Eden would be restored. That it, God would bring it back. And this is why we see all through the prophets of, in the Old Testament, there are images of deserts being turned into lush forests, wolves lying down with lambs, land producing fruitful harvests. These are signs of God's redeeming work to end the current realities and the current age of sin, death, and destruction. And God ushering in a new age of fruitfulness and life and God's unhindered presence is these signs of the garden of paradise coming back to earth. This is what the prophets spoke of. And this is what the Jews long for when God comes back and restores all things. 
And part of this, it is when God's reign as ruler over all of the cosmos is brought back into fullness and sin is gone. And so we have this language of the kingdom of God, the full reign of God as king is ushered in in its fullness. We will see the healing and the restoration of all of creation back into the paradise of God's imminent presence. And in the New Testament, the picture we have of this paradise is the new Jerusalem. The new heaven and earth. All that Eden was meant to be as a paradise is now again a fruit-filled paradise animated by a cosmic river and graced by the tree of life. But now that cosmic river and tree of life flows through a city. A city becomes the paradise of God a place of human community. And in this paradise city where the grass is green and the girls... I'm just kidding. Anybody? No 80s music fans? Okay, someone got that. Guns and Roses? Take me down to the paradise city. Anyway, come on. Okay, seriously though. In this city of paradise... Paradise City, God and humans and all of creation live unhindered in broken relationship. There's no need for the sun because the glory of God is bright, brighter than the sun. And back to that ancient understanding of the cosmos, the new heaven and the new earth, the paradise of Eden in a city will be that middle area. The hope for the hope for for future of humanity is not the clouds, but it's back in that middle section and the upper area where the firmament that separates earth from heaven is gone. And heaven and earth become one. There is no barrier. And paradise is restored on the plain of earth. And yet, as we know, of course, this time has not yet come. And in this interim time of waiting, the Jews then spent a lot of time thinking about what will happen to people when they die. What happens to the righteous? Which brings us back to Sheol. So we'll take Sheol, that under place, that, uh, back. We'll come back to that. What began is thinking about how all people went to the same place, righteous and unrighteous, to the same place. As time went on, as, the, as they wrestled with the, what this means... They, the idea began to morph that, well, it doesn't make sense that the righteous and unrighteous go to the same place in this underworld. So what, maybe what must be happening is that this underworld is divided into two sections. One for the righteous and one for the unrighteous. One is a pit of torment for the unrighteous and the other is a place of rest, a paradise, a delight. A paradise of delight for the righteous. And so in Jewish apocryphal literature, there is a lot of this talking about these two kind of being next to each other. But then even at the same time, and as time moved on, they started to go, okay, even that is a little bit suspect. And so maybe what's actually happening is that this underpart, Sheol, is actually for the unrighteous, and that the, the, the paradise part is actually up in the heavens with God. Which, of course, where then Christian, Christianity and Jesus and Jesus' followers, and this is why we think of, when we think of heaven, we're not thinking of this Shaul thing, right? We think of this because for them, 
they started to go, it doesn't make sense that everyone's kind of all there together. And so now the righteous are with God and the unrighteous are down here in Sheol. Then, of course, since God is in the heavens, right? So this is where the paradise is. It's not below the earth, but it's up here in the heavens, in the, above the firmament. But either way, whether the righteous who died are below or above, it is understood that they were in the full presence of God, that they were in the paradise of the garden. So it's hard to think, but these like five words by this criminal on the cross is invoking all of that picture of the cosmos and the hope of redemption and Eden. So let's take all of this and pretend that we are first century Jew and return to Jesus. Throughout the Gospel of Luke is this theme of the kingdom of God. The idea that God's reign as king over all of creation is going to come in fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus, near the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus reads from one of the prophets who anticipated God's reign in the restoration of what paradise will look like. And this is it, Luke 4, 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, the recovery of sight for the blind, to let the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Curing the sick, freedom for the oppressed, Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, if you read through it, he's particularly interested in showing <clears throat> that what it looks like when God is in charge is caring for the poor, for the despised, the rejected, restoring them to a place of dignity and value, that God's kingdom come on earth as it is in the heavens. And so knowing Luke's heart for the despised and the rejected, it's no wonder then we, that he's the one who tells us the story of the criminal, this despised person who then is going to be welcomed into the kingdom. All through the gospel of Luke, Jesus speaks of this kingdom, the reign of God as being now, which is confusing for us 2,000 years later, right? There's so much pain in the world, it's hard to imagine. But throughout Luke, Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God as a present reality. He says, it is now, the kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God has come near to you. Jesus says, today, this has been fulfilled. And yet, as we heard, and as we know the story of Jesus going to the cross... Jesus, the self-proclaimed anointed king, the Messiah, has been hung on a cross. He's been tortured and humiliated and given a death penalty of a criminal. And here he hangs, king of the Jews, slowly and painfully dying, a death reserved for guilty criminals. And this is the one who said God's kingdom reign had come through him. This is the one who's supposed to be the hope of paradise. So it is no wonder then we read in Luke 23. The people stood watching him. Rulers even sneered at him. Sneered at him. They said he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine and vinegar, and they said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
There was even written above his head a sign that said, this is the king of the Jews. And if that wasn't enough, one of the criminals who hung there beside him hurled insults at him and said, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and save us. Luke paints this intense picture in these few short verses of literally everyone in every way over and over and over again rejecting Jesus' main message throughout the gospel. You are no king. And this is no kingdom. If you actually were, you would save yourself. Everyone is mocking Jesus because if he were indeed God's anointed king, come to usher in the redemption and restoration of all people and all of the cosmos, he should be able to save himself. And in some ways, of course, they were right. He should have been, well, not he should have, he was able to save himself. He could have saved himself. But this is the mystery of the cross. He could have saved himself. Jesus himself says he could have called upon his Father in heaven to send down armies of angels and rescue him. But this is the mystery of the cross, so that the entire hope of all of the, the redemption and reconciliation of all of creation, this entire epic of Eden in the paradise of God being restored and the firmament of heaven being broken so that there is no difference between heaven and earth, it all comes down as pigeonholed to a man nailed on a cross. Everything, every hope ever imagined is, comes through and has no way of being fulfilled except through this man nailed to a piece of wood. It's no wonder we can't really understand this thing, right? This is a mystery. Jesus could have saved himself but if he had saved himself, it would have reneged God's entire redemption plan. The mystery of the cross is that it is only through Jesus' suffering and death can there be res resurrection and restoration. And this is one thing that this season of Lent, the season of Lent is a time where we focus on the cross and the suffering of Christ. Lent is a gift to us because yes, resurrection is up ahead, but we've still got to find a way to live amongst the pain and the suffering now. And without remembering that we come from ashes, and to ashes we will return, without the sacrifice and suffering of the cross, the resurrection becomes simply a platitude that Christians say, oh, fine, oh, I'm happy, oh, I'm always happy, joy, 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 happy, 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 right? Oh, God saves me from pain and death. Isn't it just wonderful? Well, it is wonderful. But when, that's all we can see when we don't acknowledge the cross in Lent we're fooling ourselves and we're actually ignoring the pinnacle of who God is in his work of the entire restoration of everything in this moment of a man nailed to a cross. When the pain and suffering and death occurs, and it does and it will, I think everyone here has experienced that, our faith will crumble. If all we have to hold on to if, if we don't have Jesus on a cross, our faith crumbles because it's not actually based on Jesus, but it's based on some false notion of God's kingdom 
The same notion of God's kingdom that those people around Jesus at the cross that had. If we take Jesus off of the cross and try to go straight to the resurrection, we are no different than the horde around the cross who mocks Jesus for not saving himself. For it is only through Jesus' death that there is life. No one around the cross understood that. Even Jesus' own disciples at this point, they still didn't understand that. No one except... Somehow, this criminal who's hanging on the cross next to Jesus. All the mysteries of heaven are revealed to this despised criminal. This criminal, the other criminal rebuked the first criminal and said, Don't you fear God? You are under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Here is a man, and you have to remember that these guys aren't just like having this like nice light conversation, right? They're literally having this conversation, hanging on a cross. They're dying. They're suffocating. They're going between suffocating from the weight of their arms on their chest to holding the pain of holding themselves up. This man is enduring the same painful violent as Jesus, death as Jesus. Yet knowing that while he himself is guilty, that what his, and his, what is suffering on the cross is actually just punishment and what he deserves, what he's done. He somehow knows that this guy next to him, the center of everyone's mocking, is not only innocent, but he's actually the king that he says he is. He somehow had the eyes of faith to see something that even Jesus' best friends couldn't see yet. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, this plea, remember me, remember me, it's a cry to God in in the scriptures. It's not something you say to people, it's something you say to God. Remember me that God would not forget, but remember God's promise of mercy. It's a request for deliverance or salvation. Earlier in Luke, Jesus' mother, Mary, sings a prayer in which she celebrates God's remembrance of his mercy by scattering the proud and lifting up the lowly and the hungry. And by these simple words, Jesus, remember me, this criminal is identifying Jesus with the God who saves, with God's anointed king, with the Messiah who was coming into his kingdom And this criminal saw that he wasn't coming in royal fanfare with like trumpets and and all the stuff we expect. But he's coming into his kingdom hanging on a cross. And somehow this criminal sees it. It might be because this criminal had heard of Jesus before. Or it might be because he just witnessed Jesus ask for forgiveness for these people who were unjustly mocking and killing him. We don't know exactly, but what we do know is that this criminal somehow had the eyes of faith to see that it is not by saving himself from the cross, but it is by not saving himself from the cross that Jesus reveals his kingship and his power as God's anointed. John 3.17 tells us that God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but he was himself condemned. It was not by saving himself, but it was by not saving himself that the world is saved. And this criminal saw it and asked that Jesus would remember him when he comes into his kingdom. Oh, that I had the eyes of faith like this man 
Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answers, today I tell you, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. In these words are wrapped up all of the hopes of the Jewish people for the restoration of the cosmos, the return of Eden, the fullness of God's reign. And in response to the criminal seeing Jesus for he was, Jesus reassures him that there is a place for him in his kingdom where all wrongs are made right, where people and all of creation have been restored back to this garden of paradise, whereas Revelation 2 says where humans will enjoy eating fruit from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God and live in this unhindered presence of God delivered from death and decay. This is a beautiful, hope-filled moment. Now, however, and if you know me, I like to throw wrenches into things. I didn't throw the wrench in. The Bible did this. There are problems with the common interpretation of this verse that the criminal, that very day, so when Jesus says today, like literally that day, that he would be in heaven with Jesus. One problem is that we know from Scripture that after Jesus died, he didn't actually go to heaven. Or at least not until after he had been resurrected. The other thing we know is from John 19 that the criminal didn't actually die that day. In fact, the criminal, his torturous suffering was actually going to get worse. Crucifixion usually takes days for a person to die. Jesus died on that first day, but the other two beside him didn't. John tells us that the soldiers actually came... And it's so that, likely so that they couldn't escape. The soldiers came and they broke the criminal's legs, took them off the cross, so that another day they could bring them back and hang them up again. So you could say in a physical sense, these criminals are enduring worse suffering than Jesus did. Because now, not only have they had their legs broken, they're going to be brought back and hung for a few more days, but now having to hold themselves up with broken legs. The criminal was not going to be in literal paradise that day. But if anything, his suffering was going to get a lot worse before it was going to end. So why then does Jesus say, today you will be with me in paradise? Most scholars, I think, most scholars I read think, and I think this is a good conclusion, is that this is a continuation of the theme all through the Gospel of Luke. Luke, throughout, again, as I said, throughout the, the kingdom of Jesus is here. It is a current reality. Jesus has already said, today it is fulfilled in your presence. It is near, even though, as Jesus says, the kingdom is not coming with things that can be seen. But even still, the kingdom of God is among you. Even in the midst of the suffering of the cross, the kingdom is still among you today. Not in full, not in complete restoration of heavens and the earth, but it has broken into the world through Jesus. And an important part of Jesus' kingship is that he is there. He is there on the cross, enduring the suffering and hardship, along with the criminal and along with us. Jesus didn't have to be. The criminal had to be. It was his just punishment. But Jesus didn't have to be there. The criminal was going to be there regardless, and Jesus chose to be there beside him. Jesus chose to offer forgiveness, to offer restoration, to offer remembrance, 
with this invitation to join him, to be with him in paradise. You will be with me, Jesus says. It isn't simply an invitation to hang out in a beautiful garden. It is an invitation to, no, it is an assurance of being with Jesus, the fully unhindered, unhindered presence of the king. And like that criminal in our suffering, in our hardship, in our death and decay, Jesus' presence is there beside us, suffering with us. Not because he has to, but because he chose to. And by doing so, he offers us the same hope and this reassurance. He didn't have to go through it, but he does, so that we can know we are not alone. And so he can carry the worst weight of our suffering for us and with us, and beside us. He does it so that we can have the eyes of faith to see and to know the one who does not save himself, so that we can be saved. Who does not avoid pain and death, so that we in our pain and death can have a way to life. Paradise is coming. The restoration is coming. But for the time being, whether you deserve it, like the criminal, or if it was thrust upon you by a violent world, Jesus is there beside you, suffering and dying. And not only that, but he has already gone before you into death. He's gone before us to prepare the way for us, for you, for me, for the entire cosmos, to be restored to this full presence of God in the paradise of God. But now... In this in-between time where we find ourselves like the criminal suffering and amidst decay and violence and death, surrounded by mocking crowds, may we have faith to see our beloved Savior there beside us, going before us, not saving himself but giving himself up to death, so that we might be delivered from the sting of death as we anticipate God's unhindered presence in the paradise of God. As we end... I'd like us to pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Asking for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Um, it's on the screen for those of us who don't, um, have it, who don't know the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory for an ever and ever. Amen.